everybody and welcome it's 11 p.m eastern time wednesday july 6 2022 and thank you for joining us for the 133rd episode of the rock and roll shrink radio show here on blog talk radio special thanks to our host ndb media i'm casey shapiro and with me tonight is dr stephen mathis aka the rock and roll shrink We will be taking calls from our listeners all evening during the show at 914-338-0314. You can also follow along in our live chat room on blogtalkradio.com as the show is happening. Before we begin, a couple quick disclaimers. This show does not constitute a doctor-client relationship, nor legal or medical representation of any kind. Also, the views expressed on this show are those of Dr. Mathis and Ms. Shapiro and are not an official stance on behalf of the psychological community or its peer vetting or regulatory bodies. Okay, now a topic-relevant bit of music played by Dr. Mathis himself. Take it away, Doc. Thank you. 
Thank you very much for that, and uh, apologies to our listeners. We were having a little technical difficulties that we could not quite get solved before we went live, so if there's any issue with hearing the music, we apologize for that. Um, Would you mind uh, letting us know what the name of the song and the artist was and its relevance to tonight's topic? So the tune was an old uh, Cat Stevens tune off his very first record, Motorbone Jackin, which was also the soundtrack for Harold and Maude, <laughs> which if you haven't seen it, is oh. a very quirky movie. Yeah, 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 it's an oldie but a goodie. Uh, very young Bud Court. Uh, but yeah, uh, and it's about sadness and loss and depression. It's a song called Trouble. So I thought that was kind of an interesting and uh, appropriate intro to tonight's uh topic discussion okay yeah no i get it now thank you very much for that and uh uh, hopefully you won't be too frustrated by the technical stuff going on here we're uh very eager to start talking about all that so as dr mathis mentioned tonight's episode is entitled jagged little pill cdk5 inhibitors i know that sounds super science crunchy but we will walk you guys through this so Slight nod to Alanis Morissette, obviously, and we'll discuss all that in a moment. Before we begin our topic discussion, let's go ahead and go first to the Rock and Roll Shrink Recalls, which is a moment of rock music trivia stories as recounted by Dr. Mathis, if you would, sir. Well, since uh, we are upon the moment, or soon to be upon the moment, of me uh, relocating in a few months and inhabiting my new recording studio, I thought we would talk about mics and mic placement with amplifiers. Because um, a lot of people think that when uh, folks go into a recording studio, they just kind of plug the guitars in and turn the amps up and just kind of stick the mics willy-nilly and things get recorded and it's like, you know, all wonderful and stuff. And uh, it's a whole lot more complicated than that. Um, And part of it involves, uh, you know, obviously having the right gear, having the right uh, amplifier with the right voicing for the song that you're going to do and part of the song that you're going to play. Because any of our listeners uh, who know anything about music or about amplifiers know that um, different amplifiers have sort of a signature voicing so that uh, Marshalls, for example, excuse me, don't sound like fenders, uh, that don't sound like oranges, that don't sound like suns, and don't sound like uh, bad cats and, you know, on boxes and on and on and on and on. Um, So part of it is using the right amplifiers. Part of it is using the right model of the right amplifiers because not all fenders sound the same, not all marshals sound the same. You know, it's like saying all Fords or Chevrolets are the same car with different body styles, and we all know that's not true. So, you know, once you get past all that, and then once you match the the appropriate instrument with the amplifier, whether you're playing bass or guitar, keyboards or whatever, then you've got a microphone to put in front of the speakers 
to record the sound coming out. And you want the best sound you possibly can get. And throughout the history of recording, you know, back in the day, you know, they would, when you had, you know, only two tracks or four tracks or eight tracks, you literally would have one take. You'd have the guys like, you know, all the, the uh, recordings with Elvis and the old R&B stuff and the Beatles and all that kind of stuff. All those original things were kind of like two-track machines. And you literally had microphones and people crowded around the mics. And the mic was a room mic and you got everything in the, in the mic. And if the band messed up, you had to do a whole song over again. And I mean, it, <laughs> it got a little funky. Uh, and even more so when you were trying to record symphonies or big bands or whatever, orchestras. So at, when machines came out that would had all these different tracks on them, then you could assign uh, different microphones to different singers and amplifiers and instruments and all stuff. So nowadays, there is literally endless amounts of uh, mics you can use in the studio or whatever. So, but the, just because you can use more doesn't necessarily mean them. Uh, some people still record amps with just one microphone. Some people do a room mic. In other words, they hang one microphone like very high up in the room and, and turn the amp up really loudly and record it. So it really just depends on the tone you want to get, which depends on the style of music you're playing and the song you're playing. It also depends on the physics and sound reverberation of the room you're in. Uh, and this is going to get very technical, so I'm going to make this, I'm going to dumb it down, and no offense to the audience when I say this, I'm going to make this a lot simpler than it really is because I don't want to get into all the technical stuff because people will be rolling their eyes going, dude, just get to the, you know, which mic should we use, <laughs> right? Yeah, we're going to do enough of that and, later when we get to the topic. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And <laughs> yeah, and it really depends on what sounds you want and what kind of, you know, stuff you're doing. So traditionally throughout history, people have used one or two microphones and you can still do that. If you, even if you have a shoot ton of microphones, you still can, you and you're micing an amp with a microphone, you can still just one, use one microphone, right? Depends on what you're going to do. Uh, and you can either put it against the speaker uh, cloth, which is, you know, close up, you can put it in the center of the, of the, where the, the speaker is, the, the cone, which is called on axis, or you can move it to the right or the left a little bit, which is of course called, that's right, off axis. <laughs> and how much off axis you make, it depends on the tone you want, because the sound is very, very different. The further away from the speaker you get and the more to the side or the front that you get, also depends on whether you point the microphone directly at the speaker, whether you use the side of the microphone or what kind of microphone you use. So this, this can get very, very, very tricky. And the bottom line of this whole thing is whether you use one mic or multiple mics, it really depends on the sounds you want and what sounds best to your ear because there are no major rules. The rule is there are no rules except what sounds good to you and the engineer you're working with. Right. So you try different permutations. Uh, if you're going to use one microphone, which is sort of a classic way, and a lot of bands still put one mic on one amp and they have a mic per amp, but they have one mic for one amplifier. And if they're going to do that, most people are going to use something like a Bayer M2, a 201 or a Shure SM57 or a Shure SM58. Those are kind of your industry standards. They're really inexpensive microphones, and they're great for closed miking. And you can turn the amp up 
and really let it bloom, and you're not going to blow the microphone's uh, diaphragm out with those because those uh, microphones are meant to have very high sound pressure levels or SPLs. And certain mics are, some mics are not. When you start getting into ribbon mics and condenser mics, in the words of one of my heroes, you have to be very, very careful. You have the microphones. <laughs> and when you start getting into those two mics, those mics are not meant for uber loud amplifiers. You will blow the mic up. Literally, you'll destroy the diaphragm, and that's most of what the microphone costs. You'll either blow the diaphragm the capsule out. So it depends on what kind of music you're doing, too. So let's say you're going to play a rock band. You're probably going to use, you know, sort of the straightforward SM57, SM58. Those are made by Shores or one of the buyers. M201 is kind of industry standard, right? And that's just a very traditional you know, dynamic, what's called a dynamic microphone, because it can re, it can really record dynamic music levels, big, big screen music levels, so to speak, right? And you can put it in front of the amp, you can put it a foot away, you can put it six inches away, you can put it on the, on the grill cloth, to the front, to the side, and behind the speaker, you can get the reflection off the wall. It just depends on what you want, and you really have to just plug it in, play and experiment till, till the engineer says, yep, this is what we want. It sounds awesome, right? If you want to get really crazy, you can use multiple dynamic mics. So you can use a Shure that's on the grill cloth. You can use a Shure you know, that's a foot away, and then use an overhead mic that's more of a condenser. And I mean, you can mix and match these mics all day long. People who usually use multiple mics as opposed to one microphone will usually mix mics depending on the kind of effect they want. So they might use a dynamic mic like a Shure, and then they might go to a ribbon microphone, which is very, very, very delicate, pretty expensive, and they're best at least a foot to 10 feet away from the, from the amplifier, and you don't want to blow them up. So if you're using a really loud amplifier, you, you're playing a 100-watt amp in the studio, which is not done real often, but if you end up doing that, you want to move that mic way the heck away because you're going to blow the crap out of it. Now, the good news about the, the uh, ribbon mics is they're very sensitive, and they're really good for recording things like acoustics uh, or poppy stuff or orchestra stuff far, kind of far away, and they pick up a really great sound range. They're just really, really great recording mics. They're really pricey. Uh, you know, you can blow a boat ton of money with those microphones, uh, but they really produce very high quality stuff. You can use them on vocals. Uh, condenser mics are more room sensitive mics. So those are the kind of mics you might see hanging from these really tall boom mics. Like when you see uh, two mics, they use in a drum room and they're like, ambient mics they're picking up the whole sound of the drum and they're hanging from these uber tall like long arm uh microphone stands those are the mics that they're using and those kind of things so the condenser mics and those things are really pricey and you have to get what's called the matched pair so to make this um less techy uh matched pairs of mics uh have frequency they've, they've been designed at the factory and they've literally been made one mic and then the next mic right after that mic. And they're made so that their pattern that they record doesn't overwhelm the other pattern. It doesn't interfere with the pattern because when it interferes with the pattern, you end up getting what's called phasing. Uh, 
uh, and it really makes a weird sound, and you don't want it. it phasing is bad, okay? Uh, so in order to avoid that, <laughs> if you're using two <laughs> of those kind of mics, you have to buy mics that are made, they're called match pairs, they're made in sequences. And, of course, because that is the case, the company jacks the price up just because they can. So condenser mics are really, 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 really great. Uh, but you really have to, if you're going to use them for recording amplifiers or anything really, really loud, they need to be 20 feet away, 15 feet away, so that you're not blowing the crap out of them. The same thing with ribbon mics. Uh, ribbon mics are starting to become much more popular uh, in, in, my, in the last probably 10 years. Uh, and because of that, uh, companies are making slightly lower priced ribbon mics. They're not quite as hypersensitive. Um, Natty makes some, uh, CAD makes some, Royer makes some. The Royers are usually pricey. Uh, there's, uh, there's just a number of very, very good ones. I mean, I mean, these mics can go anywhere on the low end. Oh, I don't know, $350 to $500 on the low end to, you know, $25,000 a microphone. So, I mean, we're talking like, you know, you got to be a professional to afford these kind of things or, you know, J. Paul Getty or something to avoid these kind of stuff. So and if you're using multiple microphones, you're using a combination of, you know, the dynamic microphones with the ribbons, with the condensers. Typically, if you're doing things like acoustic guitars, you're going to, and you're going to just record them live without an amplifier, you're probably going to use a condenser or a ribbon. And you might even throw a, a, a dynamic in there just to see what it's like, just to get. This really involves playing. It's, it's just as much an art form as it is a science, right? Um, and depending on whether you want a warm sound or an edgier sound or a muted sound, depends on how far the mic goes, if you're doing an amp or not. So it's just, you know, it's really up to your ear and what you like to hear. And you'll see all these artists, whether you're looking from everybody from, uh, you know, bands uh, like, you know, Zeppelin used to you record, or if you're looking at bands like Coldplay or uh, Crosby, Souls Nash, well, the former Crosby, Souls Nash, uh, or any of these, you know, uh, bands, they're going to use Metallica. All these bands are going to use different mics in different settings, and they're going to use close-up mics, faraway mics. It really depends to some degree when you get at that level who your producer is and who's paying for the session and what kind of sound they think your band ought to hear, right? Um, and part of it sometimes just involves taking a mic, even a super nice mic, and just kind of walking around the room and having the guy play guitar, bass, or drums, or keyboards, or whatever, and just saying, yep, that's the, what's called the sweet spot. Or, hey, we're going to use one mic, we're going to use a dynamic mic, let's see if we want to put it on axis, off axis, in, an inch away, two feet away, and just have the guitar player wanging away, and somebody moving the mic, and a guy or gal in the engineer's room going, that's it right there. I mean, that really, 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 really is kind of what happens. Uh, and, and so if you have a far away uh, multiple mic placements, that's commonly known as, quote, unquote, ambient miking, because you're getting the ambient sound of the room. It's the room is, the, the sound is blooming. The, the, the sound wave is bouncing off the walls and the floor and all this kind of stuff, and you're getting this big sound. That's part of the reason that I'm having my studio with a 22-foot ceiling to give the sound plenty of room to bloom. Uh, and that's why when you use, particularly when using tube amplifiers, which is all that I own predominantly, uh, or if you're using things like Leslie's, those big uh, 
four-link speaker cabinets that you see the Hammond V3s on. And a lot of guitar players use Leslie's, and I have one for my guitar as well. So if you're using a Leslie, you definitely want to do ambient miking. And you typically want to do multi-miking. The other thing is true if you're doing a, a guitar cabinet with more than one speaker in it. So cabinets come with one speaker, two speaker, three speaker, and four speaker configurations. And then if you start putting boxes, speaker boxes together, you can get any number of speakers. Most people in the studio record with either one, two, or four speaker cabinets. So in other words, a speaker cabinet has two speakers in it, four speakers in it, or one speaker in it. Uh, and I have all kinds of different configurations because this is now you're going to talk about, okay, do you have a 112? Do you have a 110 inch? Do you have a 180 inch? Do you have a 115 inch? Do you, if you have two speakers, do you have a matched pair like two JBL, uh, you know, greenbacks? That's a type of speaker. Or do you have a, G, a JBL goldback and JBL greenback? Or do you have a uh, Alnico blue, which is made with a certain kind of metal? It has a totally different sound. And I don't want to get into the techniques of all those, but all those little speaker names, they have a different tone signature, and it really depends on what you want. Sometimes mixing different speakers together comes up with this great combination than having matched pairs of speakers in a four-cabinet, uh, four-speaker cabinet or two-speaker cabinet. And that's why when I have speaker guys making me speaker cabinets, I have pretty much every almost every conceivable figuration you could possibly have. I mean, I have four 12 cabs that have four match 12s, two and two, in other words, two match 12s and two match 12s, and four completely different 12-inch speakers in a four 12 cabinet. And I have the same thing with a two 12 and the same thing with threes. And some of the three speaker cabinets have an eight, a 12, and a 10. Some of the two cabinets have a 10 and a 15, or a 10 and a 12, or two 12s, or two 10s, or yada, yada, yada. You can see where this is going. Because I don't, I never know what's going to sound good with a specific song, even if they're in the same genre, because it also depends on what other instruments you have in the background, all right? So another way you can do speakers other than multi-miking and ambient, you know, with ambient stuff is you can do front and back. So you can put one speaker in the front of the amp, uh, I'm sorry, one microphone in the front of the amp and one microphone in the back of the amp so you're catching the reflection. A lot of the old school Guns N' Roses uh, slashes amps were recorded like that. So you get these really interesting uh, sound dimensions doing that. And it also depends on whether you're using what's called a closed back cab or an open back cabinet. So some of the cabinets that you'll see uh, have an open back. So in other words, the speaker's coming out the front, but the back of the speaker isn't a solid piece of wood. It's it's partially open or fully open, and that gives you a very different resonant factor than if you have a closed-off cabinet that, that sounds a lot tighter. Um, and, I, and as you might guess, I have both, and I have even some cabinets that are half and half. So you can, half the cabinet is open and half the cabinet's closed. You get this weird, you know, kind of interesting dynamic with it, because you never know what's going to sound good in the studio, and you just really, really have to play around with it. What I will say is, you know, as I mentioned earlier, if you're using uh, ambient speaker, uh, ambient microphones, particularly to record things like a whole room sound, like you're going to record the amp with a couple of mics, and then you're going to have a couple of hanging mics to record the ambient stereo of the room, and you're going to put them in different channels, obviously. I know a lot of people do that with drum, drums or percussion, right? You, you hang, you'll have the mics on the drums themselves, and then you'll have these two high hanging microphones to catch the overall drum, and then you mix. On the mix, you're mixing all those sounds together. That's part of the reason that on the drum kit I have, for example, 
Um, I have a very large drum kit. I have a double bass kit with six toms and six or seven cymbals and, you know, the whole nine yards. So a lot of guys and gals, when they're recording drums, will put two drums on the snare, one on top of the head and one under it, and two mics on the hi-hat, one below and one on top, because it's a different sound vibration. Some people would use two uh, mics on the drums. I'll put one on front and one in the back. Um, usually in the studio, I, I, a lot of guys, some guys will do that, some guys won't. I'm not going to bother doing that with the kind of stuff that I play. But all of that produces different uh, tonal qualities. And just for the what I'm doing with my drums, just the drums themselves have 50 microphones on them. Uh, and then you have the two ambient mics hanging that's included in that. So you, and each one of those mics has a different channel in the mixer board which is why you have to have this very large mixer board if you're recording analog and want to get the most separation because that way if one of the bass drums is, and I have double basses, so if one of the bass drums is too loud, you know, if you only have one or two mics that's catching the ambient stuff, you're just SOL. The drummer has to play quieter, right? If you have mics on each bass drum, you can just turn one of the bass drums down if you want or up or whatever. I mean, there's a story that, uh, Don Henley tells that when they were recording their first and second record in England, uh, the uh, engineer, uh, the producer there and the engineer there that was working their set was the same guy that recorded Zeppelin. Well, anybody knows uh, Zeppelin knows that John Bonham was a powerhouse of a drummer. And that guy just hit the pajuzies out of the drums. Don Henley is not a powerhouse drummer. He's a much more subdued, boom-tappy kind of guy. And I'm not slamming him. I'm just describing his style. So he goes in there and says to the guy, "Hey, can you can you make my drums louder?" And the guy says, "Do you want your drum? You want your drums louder?" He goes, "Yeah." He goes, "Hit them harder." <laughs> you know, and he's like, "What the hell? I don't hit drums hard." He goes, "Well, you're just shit out of luck, aren't you?" <laughs> you know? uh, oh my God! Yeah. True story. You know, Andy John, a very famous producer. Did Rolling Stones, he did Zeppelin, he, but you know he did the Who, and you know, and, and Keith Moon was another, you know, clang banger like crazy. And he's used to those drummers. And here's Don Henley kind of doing his thing, and he's like, "No, get the drums harder." <laughs> so uh, Don Henley would not have that problem in my studio. <laughs> so if you're listening, <laughs> call me up. No, um, so that's part of the reason that I have such a large board and I have so many mics so that I can really isolate the sound but when you do that you have to really make sure that when you're doing overheads you know room mics that you're that you're getting match pairs so you're not getting phasing issues with that so that the sounds aren't overlapping on top of each other and causing these weird phasey flangey sounds so the moral of the story is there's no right way to do it. Some people like one mic, some people like multiple mics. I am one of those guys that likes multiple mics but you make it more complicated doing that, and you have to be much more judicious. And it also depends, finally, on which kind of microphone in each category, because each one of the mics, like I mentioned, the, the, Sewer, the Shures and the Byers, uh, as two examples, and there's a bunch of them. Those are just, uh, you know, AD, uh, ADK is another one. Those are just, you know, the most common examples I could think of uh, in the uh, dynamic microphone range. If you're doing those, 
every one of those has a slightly different sound signature, just like guitars and just like amplifiers. So part of it is you have to pick a, a microphone that matches your voice and or the thing you're trying to record. When you're picking vocal mics, not all vocal mics that cost $5,000 or $10,000 or $50,000. You know, you end up getting a need, uh, a Neumann, yeah, not a Neve, I'm sorry, it's a board, a Neumann microphone, uh, which I jokingly refer to as the Jewish psycho mic, uh, having grown up with a lot of Jewish people. So if you Do know I the psycho... Do I want to know the story behind that? <laughs> yeah, there is a story behind it. So the uh, who's the main character in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho? Norman, right? Oh, Norman. If he was a Jewish oh, okay. guy, yeah, yeah. he'd be called Neumann. Hey, Neumann, right? So the mics are really oh. called Neumann. Right, okay. it, it's spelled it's spelled N E U M A N N, but they're pronounced Neumann. So I call them the Jewish psycho mic. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, it's one it. of my. It's it's my way to to defeat my anomia, so I can remember the name of the microphone. <laughs> and and immediately right. slip in a dad joke while you're there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on, you know. And I love Albert Hitchcock, and I love Neumann mics, and I like Jewish people. So this is like a no lose proposition, right? And I love Neumann microphones. Anyway, um, you know, not all Neumanns have the same frequency uh, range that they record under, and you really, really, really have to get a microphone that matches what you're doing. And if you're a vocal mic, are you singing R and B? Are you singing? jazz? Are you singing hard rock, heavy metal? Are you singing ballads? Are you doing acoustics? Do you have a bassy, boomy voice or do you have a high trebly voice? All those are going to record differently on a microphone. I used to know, and I've forgotten, and I'm going to apologize up front, but I used to know the microphone that Bono uh, of U2 uses, but it's some like $90 microphone. It's like, it's like a sure I don't know if it's an SM57. I mean, it's a microphone you would not usually think of a professional vocalist using in a studio. And his voice sounds, you know, evident. he loves the way his voice sounds with that mic, and that's what he uses. And they tried him on all these uber expensive microphones, like these $50,000 Neumanns, like Barbara Streisand used to use. And he's like, nope, we're not doing that. So you really have to experiment, and there really are no rules. It's just if your only rule is if you're going to use multiple mics, match the mic with the type of music you're doing, with the type of voice you're doing. And if you're going to use multiple mics, be sure if you're using ambient ones, room mics, that you get mics that are matched pairs that, so that you won't have phasing issues. That's really the only rules. Everything else is up to your imagination and what your ear likes. And whatever your ear likes is right for you. There are no real right rules. And that's something that a lot of people, including me, have a hard time with when you're first starting out because it's like, no, I want the answer. Well, there is no the answer. <laughs> and that's the problem. <laughs> so there's your quick and dirty uh, recording microphone introduction, probably frustrating uh, lecture that most people probably didn't want to hear, but that's the truth. It really is. You just got to get in there. You got to finesse it. <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> okay, Ruth Buzzy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> now I'm showing my age because all, all the Gen Xers and Millennials are scratching their heads going, what the hell are you talking about? Why is that funny? <laughs> Watch them laughing, people. It's good for you. It's been yeah. now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All absolutely. right. So emphasis on more dirty than quick, but that was a great story. So thank you very much.
And yeah, you you go to Finesson, okay? <laughs> All righty. Yeah, so it's uh, 11.30, and we will take calls from our listeners and questions in the online chat room throughout the rest of the evening until around midnight. So we've got about a half hour left to talk. So please feel free to give us a call. Again, the number is 914-338-0314. All righty. Jagged Little Pill, CDK5 inhibitors. We're going to get all fancy and crunchy tonight. We, we usually do, but this one's going to be exceptionally big on that. Uh, I, there really wasn't any way for me to nerf this down for you guys, so I'm going to do the best I can. <laughs> so what happened is, and, uh, you know, because all great stories start with, so what happened was, uh, <laughs> an article was just recently published out on social media a couple weeks ago in June. And actually, Dr. Mathis, if you don't mind, I'm going to go ahead and mute you for a second. And, you know, as I told you guys earlier, we had a little technical difficulty. So he's on a different mic system than normal. So uh, let me go ahead and do that, and I'll let you up when we get ready to talk. All right. Apologies for that. Um, And thank you for your patience. Uh, So an article was recently published on social media a couple weeks ago in June that talks about a class of drugs called CDK inhibitors. It's Charlie Delta, uh, K as in kangaroo, I guess, five inhibitors. What lay people may want to know about this study and this problem in general is the role of CDK5, which is, it stands for cyclin-dependent kinase 5, which is a, a protein. Technically, it's an enzyme, and we're going to get to that. That's the crunchy science part. Um, it has a big role in multiple health problems, and how this latest development and study might lead to new methods that might bring some medical relief to people. The details are a bit hard science crunchy, as I told you, but in summary, it's a protein or enzyme that affects not only a lot of brain functions, but also some physiological functions as well, including, but not at all limited to, Alzheimer's, MS, and fighting cancer. So that's where I thought you guys might be interested, not only in the mental health possibilities, but those things as well. Um, So tonight we will be discussing what is CDK5 and its role in multiple health conditions. That's going to be the longest part. Uh, Some possibilities for CDK5 inhibitors in future medicine, and not not too distant future. Um, Counterpoints and critiques. And conclusions, closing remarks, and final suggestions. And I'm going to let Dr. Mathis up for air just to check in with you, sir, and see if there's anything that you want to bring up real quick before we get started. I'm good. Thank you. Okay. Here we go. So, part one, what is CDK5 and its role in multiple health conditions? So, we'd like to begin with an overview of what is CDK5 and its importance to a variety of mental and physical health issues. Uh, This first part is chunks I took out of the wiki. And just to get this out of the way every once in a while, I feel the need to do the disclaimer. We know that Wikipedia is a little bit weak as a source sometimes, but it has all the stuff vetted in there. And the things that it said happen to be true, and they coincide with NIH papers and some other stuff I had to read for this. So... I'm pretty comfortable doing it here because it also makes it easier to access for people who are not crunchy and scientific, which is part of what we're doing, you know, outreach for the show. So from the wiki, cyclin-dependent kinase is a protein and more specifically an enzyme that is encoded by the CDK5 gene. 
It was only discovered 15 years ago, and that's what is exciting about this. This is kind of new stuff. And it is saliently, in other words, importantly, expressed in post-mitotic cells that are no longer dividing, basically. Uh, Central nervous system neurons, uh, they call it CNS, obviously, an abbreviation. So you might be wondering, of what use is CDK5? Like, why do we care? Recently, CDK5 has emerged as an essential kinase in sensory pathways. Recent reports by Parik, that's the name of the doctor, et al., suggested its necessity in pain signaling. CDK5 is required for proper development of the brain. This is where you're not inhibiting it. You know, I wanted you guys to understand why do you ever want it on if we're going to talk about the inhibitors to turn it off. Well, this is what we're talking about. It's required for proper development of the brain, and to be activated, it must associate with CDK5R1 or R2, which are other enzymes that assist the central nervous system. CDK5 has been proven to be directly linked with drug abuse, and I'm actually going to unmute Dr. Mathis just in case, because this is definitely his bailiwick, and I don't know if he will feel the need to jump in, but that way he can if he does want to do that. So we know that drugs act in the reward system, you know, in your body, reaching their action by disturbing the intracellular signal transduction pathways. CDK5 is involved in those nerve signals. The addiction to drugs is a clear consequence of a neuronal-dependent experience and behavioral plasticity. When the consumption of drugs becomes a repetitive habit, it modifies several components of dopamine signaling changes in gene expression, and changes in the neuronal circuitry of dopamine-receptive neurons, neurons that receive the dopamine. And this is where CDK5 plugs in. Even though the main role of CDK5 is related to neuronal migration, its impact on the human body isn't limited to the nervous system. Indeed, CDK5 plays an important part in the control of insulin secretion in the pancreas. This kinase promotes T-cell survival and motility. Uh, this enters into autoimmune issues, issues with AIDS or HIV. Y'all remember the musical Rent and talking about T-cells? That's what we're talking about here, kids. And also fighting cancer. And a lot of these um, clinical trials involving immunotherapy often use the T-cells as well. And so this particular enzyme is involved in those processes. And this is why if this study continues to do well as it has been doing, these are a lot of the things that it might be able to help in the future. Thanks to an experiment with mice, a relation between memory and CDK5 was demonstrated. On one hand, mice did not show fear integrated by a previous activity when CDK5 was inactivated. On the other hand, when the enzyme activity was increased in the hippocampus where memories are stored, the fears reappeared. The mammalian circadian clock, near and dear to your heart, Dr. Mathis, is controlled by CDK5 with the phosphorylation of PER2, which is another enzyme. I don't want to make you guys get completely drowned. So we're only going to identify a few crunchy things for you. Um, CDK5 is needed for many neuronal processes, for instance, learning, and the formation of memories. Nevertheless, if CDK5 activity is deregulated, it can lead to really severe neurological diseases, including Alzheimer's, Parkinson, multiple sclerosis, and Huntington's disease. And obviously you can extrapolate from this if you don't 
deregulate it or this is kind of complicated to explain. I apologize. But basically there are certain choices you can make in its regulation that might be able to assist these pathologies in ways that have not happened before. That's the exciting thing about this. CDK5 is involved in invasive cancers, apparently by reducing the activity of the actin regulatory protein caldesmon. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. It's C-A-L-D-E-S-M-O-N. And I'm actually going to double check and make sure, yes. There we go. I just want to make sure that Dr. Mathis was on because I didn't know if you were going to jump in on that one. And it's fine if you don't need to. Um, Although CDK5 is not mutated in cancer tissues, its activity and expression are deregulated. The kinase phosphorylates tumor suppressors and transcription factors, which are involved in cell cycle progression. CDK5 is involved in tumor proliferation, migration, angiogenesis, and also chemotherapy resistance and anti-tumor immunity. It also participates in signaling pathways that lead to metastasis. You don't want to say metastatic cancer. And it regulates the cytoskeleton and focal adhesions. So these are a lot of the things that it can be involved with. CDK has, um, this is actually from uh, the article now, not from the wiki. CDK5 has long been linked to neuropsychiatric and neurodegenerative disorders, but prior inhibitors have largely failed to cross the blood-brain barrier and enter the brain. This is one of the huge things coming out of this study. This drug is the first of its kind to get through that barrier and affect things and help them in ways the other drugs can't. A new preclinical drug, and they have not named it yet because it's it's not even in trials. It's like in the beta, 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 beta down the road. They're just starting with this. Like I said, they only found this 15 years ago, so they got a lot of work to do. But the preclinical drug, not yet named, reported by James Bibb, Ph.D., and colleagues, has the potential to combat depression, brain injury, and cognitive disorders. The drug, which is notable for being brain permeable, like I just said, crossing the barrier, works by inhibiting the kinase enzyme CDK5, hence obviously the name. CDK5 is an important signaling regulator in brain neurons. Over three decades of research, it, it has been linked to neuropsychiatric and degenerative disorders such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Same thing is said in the wiki. That's why it sounds like I'm repeating myself. Uh, knocking out the enzyme in mice makes them more resilient to stress, improves cognition, protects neurons from stroke and brain trauma, and slows neurodegeneration. And the hope is, as further studies go along, that they can start trying this out on humans in a while, you know, when it's safe to do so. While CDK5 inhibitors may offer potential therapeutic benefits and new ways to study basic brain function, previous first and second generation anti-CDK5 compounds, in other words, inhibitors, largely get blocked at the blood-brain barrier, which restricts solute movement from the blood to the extracellular fluid of the central nervous system. So far, no CDK5 inhibitor has been authorized for the treatment of any neuropsychiatric or degenerative condition. So just to be clear, and I'm going to say it a hundred times so you guys are clear on this, this is all super experimental right now, but it's very exciting and it's very uh, we just accomplished something super cool that no one else has done. 
I don't have an adjective for that. <laughs> but that's why I'm pointing this out really prematurely because the article just went out and it is changing the whole uh, arena for this stuff. James Bibb, again, PhD, co-author of the study, um, holds the Dr. Champ Leon's Endowed Chair in General Surgery at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. They're the ones that put out the paper I'm about to talk about. And is a senior scientist at the O'Neill Comprehensive Cancer Center, which is also based at um, University of Alabama, Birmingham, uh, UAB, they call it. Uh, Bibb and colleagues now report details of their anti-CDK5 brain permeable compound. They've given it a number. So this is the name for now, 25-106. I'm, I'm sure it will get a name with letters later if it does well. They also show the systemic administration of 25-106 alters neurobehavior in mice, reducing anxiety-like behavior. The study, and this is the title of it, Systemic administration of a brain-permeable CDK5 inhibitor alters neurobehavior. was published in Frontiers in Pharmacology. Um, the title of the article about it, New Drug Could Help Stop Depression, Anxiety, Brain Injury, and Cognitive Disorders, CDK5 Inhibitors, by University of Alabama at Birmingham. It was published on June 24th. According to Bibb, three teams of researchers, and here I'm just naming the people that are involved with this study so they get proper credit. Um, three teams of researchers were involved, including UAB, uh, Marnix E. Hearsink School of Medicine, Department of Surgery Neurobiologist, very long title, Bibb, Ellen Umfress, and Ayanaba, A-Y-A-N-A-B-H-A, apologies for any mispronunciations, Chakraborty, as well as Florian Plattner of Neuro Research Strategies, Houston, Texas. Also involved were UAB Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology researchers, Kevin Ryan and Edward Acosta. The third group was composed of University of Nebraska Medical Center, medicinal chemist Sarbjit Singh, Yojesh Thanawain, Jayapal Reddy Malareddy, and Amaranth Natarajan. Support came from National Institute of Health grants. Uh, there's four grants here that are named that have helped fund this research. And for reference, quote, systemic administration of a brain permeable CDK inhibitor alters neurobehavior is the official title of the study and the paper. Um, I've named the people who worked on it already. It, that is dated May 12th in Frontiers in Pharmacology, and these are the guys that we have to thank for that. And with that, I'm going to check in with you, Dr. Mathis, all that nice, crunchy science. Do you have anything that you would like to add? Um, yeah, I think that you're going to see a much bigger impact on things like uh, neurodegenerative disorders like uh, multiple sclerosis, Wernicke-Korsakoff's, uh, Guillain-Barre, and what you're going to see if you see decreases in anxiety and depression are those disorders that are secondary to having the aforementioned physiological disorders. I don't, my personal belief is you're not going to see as big, you know, if you're going to give them just for, let's say, chronic depression or chronic anxiety, I think you're going to see a lot less impactful effects of them. Is there anything specific that you can explain in short to our listeners about 
how you came yeah, to that conclusion. Most of, those people, most of those people who have those neurologically-based disorders, they're having memory loss, they're having uh, functionality problems, gripping problems, walking problems, uh, standing problems, uh, or they're having orthostatic hypertension, they're falling down, they're standing up, whatever, or if they're having immune system problems that's causing things like HIV and AIDS, uh, you know, or any autoimmune stuff, of which uh, Guillain-Barre is an autoimmune system disorder, it's a form of that, uh, you're going to be depressed. You're going to start to your, – your, your nervous system is not going to work properly. Your things, your uh, signals are going to fire uh, erratically. You're not going to be able to walk the same, talk the same, hold stuff. And some of those disorders are uh, fatally degenerative. You die from them uh, yeah. in most cases. So uh, most people get pretty depressed when they start thinking about dying. <laughs> you know, I don't mean to be you know snarky about it, but most people when they yeah. when they have a decrease in function, people get unhappy about it. They get depressed. They get sad when they have memory loss. When they have uh, get sick all the time. You know, we already know that there's a huge connection between physical illness and mental illness. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to do something that's going to impact physical degenerative conditions neurologically. Uh, based in a positive manner are going to limit their impact on the body, you're going to lessen depression. You're going to lessen anxiety as a secondary side effect. You're not, it's not an antidepressant, anti-anxiety drug per se. It's an anti-physical drug, and the physical conditions normally produce depressive and anxiety-like symptomatology as a secondary side effect of having the diseases. Hmm. Okay. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I I do. I'm, I'm, no, no, no. I, I got it. I'm, I'm kind of just chewing on that. I abbreviated a great deal of the research on this because it was just way too much and I didn't want to drown the little. Oh, I know. So, so I don't really feel like I can counter that. So I'm just going to let it sit as your opinion because I, I have nothing okay. I can say well, about you. <laughs> well, and the other thing I would say is, you know, we have to be really careful because these things are still in their infancy, uh, as you yourself mentioned. And, you know, a lot of times drugs get released that have long-term, that don't have any short-term side effects, but have long-term side effects. A great example of that are all the SSRI drugs, the serotonin-specific drugs that are made for depression. And most of those drugs we've now discovered 20 years into this uh, 20 years plus into this, almost 30 years into it, uh, mm-hmm. that a lot of these things lead to secondary side effects of things like Alzheimer-like syndromes in some people and memory loss and forgetfulness and dementia-like symptoms. So I'm always really leery about anybody jumping on any quote-unquote new drug bandwagon until the drug has had mm-hmm. its time to prove itself. And even in the things of Paxil and Prozac, and uh, sertraline and, and that sort of thing, uh, we weren't seeing the, the negative long-term side effects until people had been on them for like 10 years. And we started seeing these things, and we just recently put it together that these were medication-induced conditions. And so gotcha. I'm always very leery of any kind, as you know, of any kind of medication. But I've had, in, in honesty, I'm the same way about new tests that come out, psychological tests that come out. So they'll come out with the latest, greatest version, and I'm just going to make this up, you know, of the IQ test yeah. or the MMI or the Beck Depression Inventory or whatever, any of the, the sort of the gold standards in our business. 
and they come out with a new version, I usually give them anywhere from two to five years to work the kinks out because they like to release those things too quickly, too. And they go, wait a minute, um, we, we messed up on the scales. Here's the updated scale. Well, by that time, you've already tested, in my case, 50 or 100 people that you've missed tests based on the data you got that's erroneous. Got it. So, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I have a hard time with that one. <laughs> so I, I just, I, anytime a new, like when they came out with the MMPI 2 for adults in 87, mm-hmm. I think it was, they said, hey, we've got all the kinks worked out of this, but don't do this. We're, we're working on a new one called the MMPI A for adolescents, and don't give that one until don't give the MMPI two to adolescents and use the corrective norms like you did on the MMPI one. Just continue to use the MMPI one with corrective norms in adolescents, which I did. And then in, in 1992, when the MMPI A came out, I said to myself, "Oh hell no, I'm waiting two years on this bad puppy." And you know, sure enough, first six months out, they're like, "Okay, well, here's here's some of the adjusted scales." I'm like, "Uh huh." <laughs> so, are the ones I told right? you were coming? <laughs> yeah, and so I, I waited for about two years, so I didn't hear any more. Okay, wait a minute. Uh, and when I didn't hear that, I started using the MMPIA, <laughs> right? Because yeah. I didn't want to miss—I didn't want to misdiagnose somebody or do somebody a disservice. And I'm even more leery of medications than I am psychological testing because a lot of times you don't know what the medications are going to do until you take them long term. The FDA doesn't require a 20-year study. It requires like a five-year study or an eight-year study in some cases. So that's why we didn't pick up that the SSRIs in some people cause dementia-like symptoms, memory loss, confusion, that kind of thing. So they were were long term. Yeah. So I'm always really flipping leery of this kind of stuff Mm -hmm. until it's been out in the the real world and hasn't had any reported foo bars for at least 10 years. And that's that's just me. I'm just very careful because you're talking about people's lives here. That's important stuff, you know? Yeah. No, I I absolutely get it. And that helps. Um, That's really in alignment with what I was saying earlier. It's that I want people to hear about this. But I want to be clear that I'm being super early about it. So don't, yep. you know, you can be a little excited and hopeful, but don't jump it down too much because it's going to be a while before this is right. figured out. How- and the other thing yeah. I would say is, you know, I would be much more excited to see this given to people who have degenerative neurological conditions because they have nowhere to go but up, right? Because if you leave them alone, yeah. we know. And results going to be so. What have they got? And I don't mean to sound you know fatalistic, but what the heck do they have to lose if the medication doesn't work, or if it maybe speeds it up a little bit? It's like oh well. Now I don't mean to sound dismissive, but if you've got somebody who's on the out, you know they're 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 heading to stage left, and we already know we don't have anything to to combat that. And then something comes up that looks like it could slow that down or stop it. I'm much more willing to try that as a hey, let's just see if this stuff works kind of way, as opposed to giving somebody something that would make depression or anxiety or whatever worse. Yeah. So so it's really the same attitude as, like, say, for example, you have metastatic cancer stage four, and they're like, yeah, yeah. we can't do anything else for you. Here's a clinical trial. You could, t- you know, try your luck. But yeah, you're not saying it to somebody who's going to go back to work in two weeks. That's not who you're talking to. 
<laughs> that's exactly right. No, you're exactly right. And and that's that's all I'm saying. Is I think we need to be uh, dubiously careful with this yes. kind of stuff. Yeah, so that, that's always fair with these things. All right. Um, if it's all right with you, let's go ahead and go to the next part. The, the, the sure. other sections are not even as long because, honestly, there wasn't a lot of controversy and stuff because it's a new study. So um, okay. part okay. two, let's talk about the possibilities for CDK5 inhibitor, inhibitors in future medicine. The first two paragraphs I actually grabbed from above, so I'm not going to repeat them. It was just letting you know some of the things that they they are hoping it can do stuff with in the future, and we just talked about that. So let's skip down a little bit. Being able to better control the activity of CDK5 could potentially make breakthroughs in treatments not only for the above things, but some sleep disorders, um, probably circadian rhythm-based, not stuff like apnea. That's a completely different thing. No, no, stuff like I inherited. (laughs) Well, yeah, like I said, this is going to be right up your bailiwick and and potentially mine. Um, immune system issues, insulin, you know, the whole thing they were doing about fear-based stuff, that might be good for stuff like what I've got where I have night terrors that are PTSD-based. You know, that kind of physiological fear where there's no source for it. It's a physiological reaction that's been misplaced and broken. You know, this might help those kinds of sleep disorders. Um, Immune system issues. Uh, you know, autoimmune stuff and also, you know, like the HIV things and, and related stuff. Um, insulin regulation and diabetes issues, not just like, oh, we give you this and you stop uh, having diabetes. But if you're having insulin regulatory issues with your diabetes, this might help with that. Um, also, pancreatic issues, vascular issues, and the lymphatic system. It can also potentially help with some some forms of intellectual disability that are genetic-based uh, can help with schizophrenia and uh, seizures. Some seizures, depends on the source, and some syndromes that are similar to ADHD. And the study was not clear whether they included ADHD in that list, so I'm going to leave that alone right there. Now, again, sorry to repeat this so much, but we want you guys to be super clear Much of this is currently theoretical for now, based on the breakthrough of CDK5 being able to be affected through the blood-brain barrier, which was a previous impediment for similar studies in the past. Is there anything else that you want to bring up before we go to the next section, Dr. Mathis? No, I'm good. Thank you. Okay. So to let you guys know, I don't really have much of a section on counterpoints and critiques because this research was put out a month ago. But in a way, that may be what I'm using as the critique, that this is lovely, but a ways off yet to helping people on Moss. So just keep an eye on this. If you see it in the media, see an article fly by somewhere, you know, now you know what's going on. But, Dan, that this is not going to be this year, probably not even next year. It's going to be years from now when they get everything shook out. You know, if you want to look for a clinical trial, if you're a little eager, you got to you got to decide for yourself with your doctor whether this applies to you. And there's a lot of different pathologies that might help, so it depends on what is going on with you. And with that, um, those are my conclusions, closing remarks, and final suggestions. This exists. It has the potential to be super cool, but it's really, really early, so don't fall off your chair. That's that's yep. the TLDR, what I'm getting to. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's a great Yeah. 
Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add in closing before we, we wrap this up? No, I'm good. Thank you for asking. Okay, cool. So on behalf of myself, Dr. Mathis, and NDB Media, we want to thank our listeners this evening and give our appreciation to those of you who might be joining us later via podcast, iTunes, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Spotify, etc. So we'll see you guys in two weeks with a new topic for discussion. That'll be Wednesday, July 20th, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, as always, right here on blogtalkradio.com. We'd also like to give a shout-out to other NDB Media shows coming up in the next couple of weeks. So tomorrow night, as often happens, Travel Itch Radio will follow us, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. What city has more rocket scientists per capita than any place else in America? Huntsville, home of the Manned Space Flight Center, is also known for parks, museums, and a rich history leg- historic excuse me, legacy predating the Civil War. We hear all about the one-time capital of Alabama from Charles Winters when he visits Travel Itch Radio. Listen as Dan Schlossberg and Mary Ellen Nugent Lee learn about Space Camp, the Rocket Museum, and the historic legacy of Huntsville. Sports Talk with the Guys, Saturday morning extravaganza, 9 a.m. Eastern Time as always. The Monday morning quarterbacks are live on Saturday morning. This is hosted on StreamYard, so please check the NDB Media page on Facebook for links and times. Sunday, the 14th of August, giving you a big, big heads up. 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time, please join me for the new Tales of the Walking Dead online viewing party, Season 1, Episode 1 series premiere. The official AMC synopsis has not yet been announced, but I will give it to you as soon as it's been posted. Thank you. Monday Night in America with Roger Noriega, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Roger D. Noriega brings you his unique take on politics, current events, entertainment, sci-fi, and history, currently also hosted on StreamYard. And Tuesdays at 10 p.m., Fandom Access, we can review. Join the chatty critics, Jamie, Karen, and AJ as they tackle another night of TV. Recent hot takes have included Stranger Things, Westworld, Ms. Marvel, Star Trek, Strange New Worlds, and whatever else sounds good. So, please look for the Rock and Roll Shrink on Facebook, Twitter, on iTunes, on Spotify, on TuneIn, on iHeartRadio, and on the web at www.rockandrollshrink.com. Good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us, and rock on. Good night. See you soon.